Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. While you're turning there, Hagen and Addison and my wife Tasha, they came very near to making this trip with me. And then Tasha decided it would be a little taxing. We homeschool our children. They can't read or write, but we homeschool our children. <laughs> she thought it may be a little taxing getting them back and the routine. How many of you know once you break the routine, it becomes difficult to get them back on task? But they do send their uh, regards to you today. Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter, if I might. Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to be reading from the modern English version, and I will also reference the King James Version today. Isaiah 6 and 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The post of the door moved at the voice of him who cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar in his hand. He laid it on my mouth and said, This has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their heart and turn and be healed. Then I ask. Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste without inhabitants and the houses without man and the land is utterly desolate and the Lord has removed men far away and there is a great forsaking in the midst of the land but yet in it shall it be a tent and it shall return and be burned as the oak tree or the terebinth whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed is its stump. And I draw your attention to verse number 9, and I apologize, I do not have all of the notes submitted to the media booth today, but I draw your attention to the ninth verse from where we will 
derive the title of this morning's message, Go and Tell. Go and Tell. I believe what I'm going to preach to you today is a prophetic message for where the American church is positioned. And I believe that this prophetic message will be quite unlike anything you've probably heard before. As a matter of fact, I think it will be to the contrary of what you've heard before. Go and tell. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity again to fulfill this office to which you have sovereignly chosen us to occupy. Lord, we find ourselves in an unprecedented time. We find ourselves confounded and confused. We find ourselves bedazzled and bewildered. We find ourselves attempting to understand what you desire of us next. In the next few moments, help us again to have clarity of thought, conciseness of speech, as we examine what I believe this prophetic passage is attempting to communicate to your people. At the conclusion thereof, help us to be a people that are determined to be faithful, to go and tell. In Christ's name we ask it and everyone said amen. This last Wednesday, I want to shame the devil and tell the truth. I was completely unable to turn on the television and watch the inauguration of the 46th president of the United States, that being Joseph R. Biden. Could not bring myself to take part in Wednesday's festivities and activity. I actually went to pick up a bite of breakfast, walked into the bagel shop, and they had the television on, and I quickly turned my attention away from it because my blood pressure can't take it, to be quite frank with you. What happened Wednesday has left many depressed, distressed, despondent. We feel like we're in a, a darkened state. A cloud is hanging over our great country. Many in the church are completely bewildered. That bewilderment is resting over the church because numerous prophets have prophesied for months on end without fear of contradiction that Donald J. Trump would surely be reelected. And it did not come to pass. Because those prophecies were left unfilled, now the world is castigating the church. They have weaponized these errant prophecies and are now returning them to us in the form of harassment. They're now returning them to us to our detriment. And many a believer feels shame and feels uh, the angst, the anger, 
the, the, the vitriol of the world. A number of believers have even suggested that this is all the more reason as to why the church should absence itself from the public arena. Now, I've been processing this information. Creston and I were having some private discussion this morning in the evangelist quarters, and I told them, I don't know about you, but I have found developing sermons during the last 12 months to be extremely difficult. I have found that coming to, to a fixation on a particular subject matter has, be, has become uh, extremely difficult. It's almost to me, for me, as though the heavens have become brass. There are, as I said a moment ago, numerous people that through the last year have proclaimed, now hear what I'm saying, they have proclaimed that God has much to say during this current season. Prophesying the, the results of the election, prophesying a major revival sweeping the nation. Maybe they're right and I'm wrong because I am certainly not beyond error. But all I can tell you is what I have experienced personally and what I have experienced personally is that in the last 12 months, God has had very little to say. See, it's already getting quiet. I told you I'm going to say some things that are absolutely contradictory to what's been echoed in the halls of religious institutions for the last 12 months. I'm not hearing an open heaven. I'm not hearing that God has much to say. I'm not hearing predictions of great national revival in America. I'm not hearing much at all. What little bit I am able to ascertain through my spiritual antenna seems to indicate to me that this nation is in big trouble. What few messages I have been able to decipher from the spiritual realm seem to give me every indication that America stands on the brink, not of the great revival or a third great awakening, but rather America stands on the brink of the judgment of the Almighty. And I'm concerned. Trying to determine what to say next and what to do next and, and then you watch and you hear you hear the, the, the call, the repetitive beat of the drum from both politicians and preachers. A call for unity. Unify, unify, unify. I read that our new president said that we must end the war between the red and the blue, referencing Republicans and Democrats, and we must, we must unify as Americans. I'm all for that. I am all for all sides reigning in the, the constant call for battle. I'm all for lowering the temperature of the room. But let me say this because I would be amiss if I did not do so. I find it to be quite interesting that, that a group of people that for the last four years called people like you and I 
homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic. Y'all help me here. Come on. Every kind of misogynistic, every kind of label that deplorables. And this same group that for four years has thrown those titles on people like ourselves now says we are Christian nationalists. We are domestic terrorists. It's going to be hard to unify with people that call you those kind of things. It's going to be extremely difficult. And I wonder where the nation is heading. And more importantly, I wonder what the church's role is going to be in the direction that the nation is heading. So I've been praying, and, and I believe that God has led me to Isaiah and to his messianic message and purpose during his particular time and day. I believe it's so applicable for us today. Isaiah is made up of some 66 chapters in length. Isaiah is referenced as the mini Bible. Your Bible is constituted of some 66 books. Most theologians say that if they could only have one book of the Bible in their possession, they would choose the book of Isaiah because in possessing it, you possess basically an overview of the entire canon of Scripture. Isaiah's prophetic ministry would last, if my memory serves me correct, through the span of four different kings. He was an educated man. He was an influential man. Isaiah in this sixth chapter will see the death of the king to whom he was related, a king by the name of Uzziah. Now, let me give you some background here before I move into my text. Uzziah, the Bible also references him as Azariah in the book, I believe, of 2 Chronicles. They are one and the same individual. Uzziah was extremely successful in his rule and reign. He came to the throne of the southern kingdom. Remember, Israel, made up of 12 tribes, had been divided by civil conflict. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom made up of Judah and Benjamin. And in that southern kingdom is where Uzziah would reign. And Uzziah came to the throne at 16 years of age. Imagine that, a 16-year-old king leading the country. He reigned for some, I believe, 52 years. And in his reign, that southern kingdom saw tremendous advancement. It was blessed. It was prospered. They saw tremendous success. The king himself was uh, uh, an innovator that beggared description. Under Uzziah's leadership, Uzziah's leadership, the, the military would begin to form and make weapons such as the catapult that changed the military battlefield. He also was a great innovator in the world of agriculture. God blessed him. God prospered him. God used him to bless and prosper the nation. 
And it is most likely due to those very successes that the Bible tells us that pride began to fill the heart of Uzziah. Pride filled his heart so much so that he would intrude into the office of the priest. Some of you are sitting here thinking, where in the world does he come up with all of this? It's all in your Bible. Read it. You'll find it. He would intrude into the office of the priest and would attempt to do what God had clearly said was forbidden for anyone to do outside of the priesthood. He pushed his way into the office of the priest, into the holy place, and he attempted to offer up incense on the altar. The priest pressed against the proud king. Now understand, this man again, a man of God, this man a man of integrity, this man a man of success, a great leader of his country. But now through pride, he is pressing in and attempting to do what God has forbidden any man to do other than the priest. And the priest tried to stop him. The priest tried to restrain him. The priest tried to say, King, you can't do that. And the priest couldn't stop him. So God stopped him. Did you hear what I said? The priest couldn't stop him. So God stopped him. How did God stop him? God smote him with leprosy. Even as the priests were looking at him, the white spot of leprosy appeared in his forehead and began to spread over his body, consuming his entire being. And they took the king and quickly ushered him off into a chamber, a house of isolation, where he would live for some 11 years as a leper, consumed with leprosy. Hear what I'm about to say? You may not agree with it. That's all right. I will tell you the same thing I have told thousands of listeners as I have preached this gospel around this country. I will never, ever, ever deny you your right to be wrong. Never. <laughs> this is America. If you want to be wrong, bless God, you're free to be wrong, okay? <laughs> I have talked to numerous minister friends. I have asked, I have asked, I have asked, I have asked, why would God not allow Donald J. Trump to serve this country for four more years. I was and am still one of the most uh, thankful and appreciative people concerning his leadership. The most pro-life president in my 45 years of life, the most pro-Israel president in my 45 years of life, and the most pro-church, pro-religious freedom president in my 45 years of life. Those three things, I think, are of immense importance. And why would God not honor that? Why would God not allow this man to serve four more years? And the only theological answer that I can come up with until this point in time is because Donald J. Trump is much like Uzziah. He's a very proud man. You may not agree with that, but that's a fact. He is a very proud man, and God despises pride. The Bible says a proud look is one of the things that God hates. It is detestable in his sight. 
And I just wonder if the successes of the 45th have led to his demise. Why is that important? Hear me, church. You've been blessed with success. You've been blessed with this building. You've been blessed with great pastoral leadership. But understand something. If we're not very careful, that, that thing which is our blessing can easily become our curse. Many a church has failed and, and fallen during a season of success. Success is very dangerous. And he presses in. He loses his office, and that's why we find Isaiah here in this sixth chapter. He is, he is completely downcast. Isaiah, much like many of us in the church, recognizes that it is under this man's leadership that we have prospered. It is under this man's leadership that we have been blessed. It is under this man's leadership that we have succeeded. It is under this man's leadership that many an open door has been presented to us, and now he's been rapidly removed from the scene. He's living as a leper in isolation, and Isaiah is wondering what in the world is going to happen. He's confused. He's confounded. He's anxious. He's nervous. He's worried, and it's in the year that Uzziah died. It's in a year of transition. It's in a year of turmoil. It's in a year of this uncertainty that all of the sudden he says, I saw the Lord. Hallelujah. I said, hallelujah. Let me give you four things quickly, if I might, that must happen. They must precede our going to tell. Remember, that's our ultimate goal here today is we're going to go and tell. But four things must happen before you and I go and tell. You see, the church is very confused. The church is very confounded. The church is wondering what's going to be next. But, but let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the same uh, eternal call that was placed upon us prior to all of this political upheaval and turmoil is the same call that, that we have after all of this political upheaval and turmoil. The call to the church is go and tell. Come on, saints. Go and tell. And the first thing that must happen before you and I go and tell, we must see the Lord. I said we must see the Lord. I know I'm living this personally. And I know it's so applicable for each and every one of us here corporately today. Our problem, the reason that we are in such consternation is because of what we're seeing. What you see will impact what you say, and what you say will impact what you do. Come on. I said what you see impacts what you say, and what you say impacts what you do. And we are seeing things that we never dreamed could happen in the United States of America. I said, we're seeing things we never dreamed could happen in the United States of America. I mean, just this week, the first transgender was appointed to serve in a national office. Sometimes I worry about these young adults. I worry about my children. I worry about Creston's children. I worry that our children are going to grow up and think things are normal that, that we grew up and knew was absolutely abnormal. 
You see, that, that, is one of the, that is one of the great tools of the enemy. He wants to normalize the abnormal. And he, he wants to normalize the abnormal, and then he wants to take the abnormal and make it normal. I wish I had time to preach all of this today. It's 20 minutes till 12. Did you get what I said? The devil, understand what's happening. The devil wants to take things like, like, like sexuality. The devil wants to take things like abortion. The devil wants to take 101 things that are completely a violation of the creation itself. All you have to do is look at nature in its universal state, and you'll know some of this stuff is craziness. It's absurd. Creation itself declares its abnormality, but Satan wants to make those abnormal things seem normal. And then he wants to come and make the abnormal. Can I tell you the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is abnormal? Come on, some of us are more abnormal than others. Come on, look at your neighbor and say amen. They won't know if you're talking about them or... The church of the Lord Jesus is abnormal. We, 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 the devil, the, isn't, it, isn't it strange? Isn't it strange? The devil wants us to come to a house of God and, 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 and make it abnormal to do things like lift your hands and worship the Lord. Oh, I can't do that. That's, that's, that's so abnormal. Come on, saints. He, he, he wants to flip the switch. I mean, you can, you can go to a ball game and stand and scream and shout and run and dance and, and cuss the referees and everything else, and everybody looks at that as normal. But if we so much as say boo in the house of God, oh, my God. Come on, saints. That is a trick of the enemy. He, he is using reverse psychology, trying to normalize the abnormal and normalize or make the abnormal normal and vice versa. Number one, we need to see the Lord. I said we need to see the Lord. We need to see the Lord. We may not get past this. We need to see the Lord. If we're going to be able to go and tell, we've got to get our eyes off of CNN and MSNBC and CBS and Fox News. Come on, saints. You've got to get it off of Newsmax and, 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 and OAN or One or whatever they call it and 101 other things. And we've got to get our eyes turned on the Lord. Because what we see determines what we say, and what we say determines what we do. Remember in the Old Testament, God had said, I'm going to give you this land of milk and honey. I'm going to give you this land of promise. All of it will come into your possession. And then God instructed Moses to take 12 spies, one man that represents each one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and send them into the promised land and look it over. Now, have you ever stopped to think about why they went? God told them to go, but understand who the one is that's telling them to go. He's God. He doesn't need anybody to go in that land and tell him what's there. He's already looked in that land and knows what's there. Come on. He's the all-seeing eye. He's the all-hearing ear. He's the all-knowing mind. He didn't need those 12 guys to go in there and come back and tell him what was on the other side of the border. He knew what was on the other side of the border. 
Isn't that interesting? God knew what was there, but says, I want you to go over and then come back and let me hear what you say is there. Come on. Why? Because what you see determines what you say, and what you say determines what you do. And they came back. Two of them said, it is just as God said. This land is a land of plenty. It is just as God has said, and we're going to be able to go in and take it. And ten said, wait a minute. That's not what we saw. Come on. Numbers chapter 13, they said, we saw giants. We saw great walled cities. We saw adversity. We saw trouble. Come on, saints. We saw resistance. We saw ourselves as grasshoppers. And all of the people heard what they said, and what they said was determined by what they saw, and now what they do. We're not going. Come on. They begin to do the polar opposite of what God had already instructed. You and I have to be very careful in the day in which we're living as to what we allow our eyes to affix themselves to. Because there's many things in this current culture that are attempting to dominate your vision. Come on, saints. I said they're attempting to dominate your vision. And they're attempting to change what you see, what you say, and what you do. But as saints of the living God, it is time we heed the instruction of the Lord and lift up our eyes unto the hills from where comes our help, for our help comes from above. Come on. The Bible says we are to look unto Jesus. I said we look unto Jesus. We're not looking to Washington, D.C. I'm not looking to the Supreme Court ultimately for my help. I am to look unto Jesus who is the author and the finisher of my faith. We need to see the Lord. Isaiah, in his, in his despondency, in his trouble, he looks and sees the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne. I've got good news for you today. If you'll look up and see the Lord, you'll get the revelation that Isaiah got. Seated on the throne, there is so much upheaval. There's so much talk about the deep state. There's so much talk about the, the, the legitimacy or lack thereof concerning the election. I had one very prominent leader of whom I trust his opinion greatly. He told me on uh, Friday night, he said, I'll turn 80 years of age this year. And he said, unless we have voter reform in this country, he said, it's my opinion that in my lifetime, there'll never be a Republican president elected again. Amen. So much upheaval in the, in, the, in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And that's certainly worth our consideration, and it's certainly worth our involvement. I'm not demeaning that at all. But what I am telling you is if you'll lift up your eyes and look beyond Washington, D.C., if you'll lift up your eyes and look beyond the governing powers of the United Nations, if you'll lift up your eyes and look beyond this natural world that we live in and look into the world beyond, you will see that there is a king that is still seated upon his throne. I said there is a king that is not... He is not elected. 
Hello. I said he is not elected. He does not submit himself to the will and the whim of people that are constantly changing in who they do and do not favor. There is a king that is not worried about who took the house or who took the senate. There is a king seated on the throne that is not asking for the Supreme Court to keep him in power. Come on, saints. There is a king eternal that Isaiah just a couple of chapters later would say upon his shoulders the government of this world shall be placed and of his rule and reign there shall be no end. I've come to settle every doubt. I've come to spur you. I've come to kickstart you in your faith again. Lay all of this aside that is vying for your attention and look again. I said look again. As, as Moses instructed the people of God in the wilderness, look to the serpent that is mounted on that brass pole. Look to the cross. Look unto Jesus. What's the song say? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us look and see the Lord again this morning. Before we go and tell, we have to see the Lord. Number two, before we go and tell, we must hear something. Isaiah first saw something. Verse number three said he heard something. What did he hear? He heard the seraphim. Seraphim are angelic beings with six wings who occupied space near the throne of God. And they cried one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Hallelujah. I said, Hallelujah. Amen. Thank God. What's he describing? He's describing the governance of the one that sits on the throne. Amen. I said, He's describing the governance. He's describing the kingdom of the one that sits on the throne. If we've learned anything through this political season, we have learned that politicians are a dime a dozen. One of the greatest uh, distractions to me, one of the greatest things that, that has upset me has not been the Democrats. One of the greatest things that has upset me is, has been people that are supposed to be conservatives. I'm going to go ahead and get on my soapbox for a minute, okay? If you don't come back tonight, guess what? It won't bother me one bit. It'll bother the pastor. See, I'm going home in the morning. Some of you said, well, thank God. Well, I'm kind of thinking that myself. Thank God. I'm just kidding, folks. you got to know how to take me. My wife says I'm better taken in small doses. Too much at one time will cause overload. Let me tell you something about conservative people. I'll tell you something I've learned, not only through this political cycle, but through, through lots of involvement in various circles. We are of all people most vain. We are vain. Vanity, vanity. What do I mean by that? Conservatives are consumed with their public perception. We're so worried about 
How does the public view me? Those of you that sit here, be careful, be careful, be careful, because you, 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 you're so concerned about how your family views you, how your schoolmates view you, how, how your community, your coworkers, you're so concerned about how your clique views you. And there's some positive in that, but there's some negative too. I mean, why, why are liberals so successful in this world? I wish I had time to deal with these terms, conservative and liberal. They're not perfect because they could, they're relative terms. They mean a million different things to a million different people, but they're the best terms we have currently. Why are liberals so, so effective at what they do? Liberals, they see a goal. They have an end. And they determine we're going to stick together and use whatever means possible to reach that goal. Conservatives have a goal or an end, but they seldom reach it because they get so concerned about how they look in the journey. I told Pastor earlier this week, I said, here's a problem with conservatives. We want to go into war. We want to go into battle. We want to go into a conflict, but we expect to come out the other side with our uniform pristine. I mean, pressed iron, not a wrinkle in it, no muck, mire, or blood. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not possible. I said, that's not possible. And we're the first ones to jettison our own under the bus for the sake of self-preservation. That's got to change. But let me tell you something about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is nothing like the kingdom of men. I said the kingdom of God, the governance of our Lord, this king that's seated on this throne, what is the government like? governance like in this world? It is unholy, unholy, unholy. But the governance of our Lord is holy, holy, holy. What's the writer of Romans tell us about it? He says that the, that the governance of God, the kingdom of our Lord is not made up of meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I've dealt with enough depression. I've dealt with enough uh, anger. I've dealt with enough uncertainty through the last number of weeks. I'm ready for a good dose of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The governance of our Lord is holy. So first, you've got to see something. You've got to see the Lord before you go and tell Number two, you've got to hear something. You've got to hear that the governance of our Lord is holy, holy, holy. I'm going to cut that point short and move on to point number three. You've got to feel something before you go and tell. I said, you've got to feel something. Notice what verse 5 says. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he saw something and he heard something, all of a sudden he felt something. What did he feel? He felt his unworthiness. He felt disconnected from that kingdom that he was a personal witness to. Let me use this term. He felt lost. He felt a, an absence from God. 
This is one of the things that we've got to get back to understanding and being able to bring into fruition our reality if we're going to be effective in the going and telling. There's a lot of people that go and tell and they, they see no results. What do you mean, evangelist? I mean this. We'll never be able to get people saved until we first get them lost. Come on, ladies and gentlemen. There has to be a conviction of the Spirit that accompanies the message that you and I are proclaiming. That's what's absent in much of the presentation of the gospel, a convicting power of the Spirit. And one of the reasons it's absent is because we have become a seeker-sensitive church in America. We want to make sure that everybody's comfortable. God never attempted to make people comfortable. God wanted to make people convicted. I'm not talking about condemned. I'm not talking about shamed. I'm not talking about embarrassed. I'm not talking about made a mockery of. But I'm talking about this internal realization where people know that in our midst, when we are seeing the king seated on the throne and we are proclaiming he is holy, 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 there should be this internal mechanism, the conscience of man that says to that man, as it said to Isaiah, that you are unclean and undone. He felt something. He felt the conviction of his state of being. I'm unclean. I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. And the Bible says that one of those angelic beings went to the altar and took the tongs and retrieved a coal of fire and came back and touched it to the lips of the prophet. Hallelujah. I said he came back and touched it to the lips of the prophet. And notice the statement that he gives the prophet as he touches his lips with it in verse 7. He laid it upon my mouth and said, as he touched the lips, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Hallelujah. I said hallelujah. Now notice with me, that coal in and of itself could not take away sin or iniquity. But it's where that coal found its origin. Where did this coal come from? The coal came from the brazen altar. There are a number of articles of furniture or articles of worship that you find in that temple or that tabernacle, and I don't have time to detail them today. But one of the most important articles was that brazen altar, and that's where they would take those blood sacrifices. That's where they would take the oxen, the sheep, and the list goes on and on, pouring out their last blood and then, and then gutting them and taking their carcass, the meat thereof, and burning it on that altar, which was symbolic of what Jesus would come and do at the cross of Calvary for you and I. And that, that coal, that fire that consumed those, those sacrifices represented the very judgment of God. It was the judgment of God coming upon those animals. Animals. But remember what John said, uh, the blood of bulls and goats, it wasn't John, but other, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Come on, saints. But God is going to send one who could take away sin. 
John said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. That is the origin of that coal. It came from that altar. And he comes and touches it to the lips of the prophet and says, Your iniquity has been purged. Your sin has been removed. Thank God for that feeling of conviction because if you will heed that feeling of conviction, it's going to lead you to another feeling. I'm not here to preach simply about feelings because I know the Bible doesn't say we live by feelings. The Bible says we live by faith. But I am very thankful, as my evangelist friend here says quite often, I'm thankful for the times that we can feel it. I said I'm thankful for the times that we can feel it. I know what it is to feel convicted, but I know what it is to feel saved. I know what it is to feel the burden rolled away. I know what it, come on, saints of God, I never shall forget the day when the burden of my sin rolled away. It makes me happy, glad and free. I sing and shout it for he's everything to me. You can sit there like a knot on a log and say, I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe you don't, but if you ever get convicted and come through to the other side, all of a sudden you're going to know what Isaiah felt. He felt born again. He felt the weight of sin rolled off his back. He felt like a new creation in Christ Jesus. So before you go and tell, you got to see something. Before you go and tell, you got to hear something. Before you go and tell, you've got to feel something. And before you go and tell, you got to say something. After he's cleansed, he feels the, ro the, 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 the load rolled away. He hears the voice of the Savior. Who shall I send? Who will go for us in verse 8? Then Isaiah speaks up. We got too many people with something to say that have never seen anything, never heard anything, and never felt anything. Ooh, I'm preaching better than you're acting. I said, we got too many people with something to say that have never seen anything, heard anything, and felt anything. Too many talking heads. Come on, ladies and gentlemen. It's one of the things I'm very concerned about right now in the American church. There are too many voices. I said, there are too many voices. There are too many people talking, pulling our attention here and there and everywhere and causing more confusion than they are help and order. But after you've seen and after you've heard and after you've felt... Then you got something to say. Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. You want somebody to say something, Lord, send me. But now here is where I'm going to begin to preach and hopefully begin to elucidate, illuminate for you, show you in the Scripture what I believe God is saying that is contrary to what others are saying. I pray they're right and I'm wrong. But I'm just giving you, again, the best that my spiritual antenna can pick up, okay? A lot of people are prophesying a third great awakening in this country. A lot of people are prophesying sweeping revival. I pray to God that that's right. But it's not what I sense in my spirit. What I sense in my spirit is much more in alignment with what happened in the prophetic ministry of Isaiah. Most people don't even know this. 
He says, here am I, Lord, send me. And the Lord says in verse 9, go and tell. Go and tell this people. Hear indeed, but understand not. See indeed, perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest their eyes see. And they hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Did you understand what he's saying? Go and tell. They're not going to listen to you. Well, y'all shouting with me now, aren't you? That was the commission of Isaiah. He said, go and tell, go and preach, go and prophesy, go and witness. But know this, they'll not see the truth. They'll not hear the truth. They'll not be healed. They'll not be converted. Why is that important? It's important because I could come in and work you into a frenzy this morning about third great awakenings and sweeping revivals and go and tell and everybody you tell is going to immediately fall to their knees and make Jesus King of Kings and Lord of Lords in their life and get you all fired up. And everybody wants to be a part of a successful campaign like that. But how many people in this room, if that's the campaign that God wants, I'm 110% for it, and I want to be at the front of the line. But let me ask you a question. How many people seated under the sound of my voice can be faithful if your calling, if your commission is not that, but rather like that of Isaiah's? How many people can be faithful in going and telling knowing they will not hear, they will not see, they will not turn. That takes a whole nother level of faith. Huh. Notice what Isaiah asked him. How long, Lord, how long will I tell and they not hear? The Lord answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitants. The houses without man, the land be utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. After that, a tenth. I can tell y'all want a different evangelist. Be a lot better if I were preaching to you saying, everybody you got, 90% of those you go and tell are going to say, Praise God. Show me how to get saved. Maybe. But what if it's like Isaiah's commission where God says, go and tell, and only one out of ten. Go tell it, prophet, but only one out of ten are going to respond. Listen to me. We need to be careful. I loop this back to the early portion of my message. We are so geared to be successful. Remember what I told you that the desire and the pursuit of success can become a curse. The desire and pursuit of success can actually lead you into the contrary against the will of God. Let me show you something as I close. Let me show you something. Let me show you what we're going to go and tell. Let me show you what I, where I believe the church is in this state of the nation, okay? Turn with me to the book of James. 
Look with me quickly in these last few scriptural references. I know this has been somewhat different, but I could not get away from this direction. I tried even after the service started, and the Lord forbade me. Let me show you what the gospel really does. How many know that the Bible says of the gospel or of the word of God itself that it is a two-edged sword? It's a two-edged sword. Let me show you both edges how the gospel works, okay? James chapter 1, verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. One edge of the gospel, one edge of the word of God is the salvation edge. If you let that edge cut you, you'll live. You'll make it. But there's a second edge to this gospel sword. We find it referenced in Hebrews chapter 11 as it gives us the record of the ministry of Noah. Hebrews 11, just one chapter prior to, to James, Hebrews 11 verse 7, by faith Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which he condemned the world. Did you hear that? Noah's a preacher of righteousness, the scripture tells us. And through 120 years of preaching, he did what? He didn't save the world. He condemned it. And he became an heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. That's the other edge. One edge of the gospel is a saving edge. The other edge is the judgment of God. That second edge has been virtually non-existent in the American church for the last 20 years. One of the reasons we're at where we're at today is the absence of that second edge. Let me show you in 1 Peter. I appreciate your graciousness. I know you, I've taken you past the top of the hour. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 20. It says, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. Now catch that. You need to understand that that is the character, the nature of God. God is what? Long-suffering. The Bible says that in the last days, scoffers will come saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is this promise of the coming of the Lord? We don't see. Y'all been saying for 10 years, for 100 years, for 1,000 years, for thousands of years that the Lord is coming. Where is the promise of his coming? And what's the response? God is not slack concerning his promises as men count slackness, the Scripture says, but he is long-suffering that men everywhere would be saved. So God was long-suffering in the day of Noah, hoping that men would be saved while the ark was preparing. But notice what it goes on to say, wherein few, everybody say few. few. How many were saved in the ministry of Noah? Few. Yeah. 
Only eight. He and his house, his immediate house, boarded the boat. Why is that important? It's important as we understand the commission of Isaiah because oftentimes we think ministry is only successful when we're reaching many. My God, I know I'm talking for the Lord to you right now. I said, we think that ministry is successful only when we reach many. I'm not saying that we should not attempt to reach many. I'm not saying that our goal should not be to reach many. But I am telling you, there are repetitive narratives throughout the Bible of men and women of whom you are no better than they that were very successful in that they were faithful to the call of God and they reached maybe only few, but they did what God asked them to do. So what are we to do? Jude in your Bible, I'm done. Jude. Turn there quickly with me. Chicken fried steak is calling. Jude. Verse 17. But beloved, remember you the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you there should come scoffers, mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit. Verse 20, catch it. But you, beloved, Building up yourselves on your most holy faith. Here we go. I said, here we go. We're going to go and tell. We're going to see the Lord. We're going to hear. We're going to feel. And we're going to begin to say. And here's the things that I think God wants us to do in this all-crucial moment of unprecedented time. Number one, build yourself up praying in the Holy Spirit. Come on, saints. A lot of us have spent a number of months under the COVID and the pandemic and the political upheaval. We've not been being built up. We've been being torn down. But God is saying, build yourself up, praying in the Holy Spirit. Number two, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Did you hear me? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Why is that so important? Because if you're like me, I've had some days I've been mad lately. Oh, come on, you sanctified people here in Mauriceville, Texas. I called a preacher friend of mine recently, and he said, hey, what's up? I said, I just need somebody that will keep confidence that I can cuss to. <laughs> I said, I got to cuss. Be careful. Come on. It's okay to be engaging in these arenas, but above all, keep yourself in the love of God. You build yourself up praying in the Holy Ghost. You keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And then number three, on some have compassion making a difference. On some, have compassion making a difference. On others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Creston, come on back. Hear what he said on some. We're not going to, hey, here, listen to me. This is where America is. 
I believe this. I know they've been prophesying Trump was going to remain the president. I know they've been prophesying a third great awakening. I know they've been prophesying sweep, uh, millions are going to be swept into the kingdom of God. And again, I pray that that's accurate and I pray that that's right. But what I'm hearing is something much more like the commission of Isaiah. What I am hearing is that God has dealt with this nation time and again. Do you know that the people of this nation have heard the name of Jesus millions of times? Some of you sit here under the sound of my voice and you've heard Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You've heard the gospel a multitude of times and yet you have not heeded the call. And did you also know that there are millions of people around this planet that have never heard Jesus spoken once? Not once. Not once. I believe God is calling us to be faithful and true. I believe God's calling us to continue to do what he's always called us to do. That is go and tell. And I believe he's calling us, don't be discouraged when they won't hear. Don't throw in the towel when they won't see. Don't give up when they refuse to be healed and converted. You see, if we're not careful, we will fall into the mistaken mentality of believing that the lack of numbers or the lack of quote-unquote success reveals insufficiency in either the message or the messenger. I've got to stop. Listen to what I'm saying. If you're not careful, you will buy into the fallacy that if we don't see great success, it must mean something's wrong with the message. There's nothing wrong with the message of Christ and Him crucified. Nothing. It is complete. There is nothing insufficient. Well, maybe there's something wrong with me, the messenger. Maybe I should stop going and telling. There's nothing wrong with you. Don't buy into that lie of the devil. You keep doing what God told you to do. Go and tell it. If they don't respond, that's nothing to do with you. Go and tell it. Friends, there are going to be some hard days ahead for this country. I know your pastor's been preaching that. You, you hear me? Some hard days ahead for this country. And spiritual pablum is not going to cut it. I was walking in this altar last night and praying, praying for the service around this room. Creston was practicing. pastor was here, and we were conversing some. And the Spirit of the Lord dropped a phrase in my heart and I placed it on my social media platform. And it simply said this, just any old church won't do in days like these. Amen. Religious repetition, just doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it, it's not going to cut it. It's going to take a church like the book of Acts and nothing less. Stand with me all across this building. Father, help us. Come on, saints. I want you to lift your hands. I want you to lift your heads. I want you to lift your eyes to the hills from where comes your help. Come on. I want you to look and see the Lord today. I said I want you to look and see the Lord. I want you to look beyond this natural veil. 
and look into that supernatural realm and see there is a Lord who is high and lifted up. He's seated on his throne and his train fills the temple. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Maybe you've been distracted by something other than politics or something other than the pandemic. Maybe you've got chaos in your marriage, chaos with your children. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've been diagnosed with cancer or 101 other things that have attempted to distract you. But today, I charge you, look again. Look again. In Jesus' name.